All right, this is the audience participation part of our worship today. Raise your hand if you know someone who is a conflict avoider. Great. That's the easy one. Now raise your hand if you are a conflict avoider. Remember, we are at church. Um, let me tell you a story. Thank you for doing that with me. Uh, uh, let me tell you a story about someone I knew back at Abilene Christian University. Uh, when I was at school, there's this guy I knew who was extraordinarily terrible at handling conflict, which is odd given that he was quite confrontational in the classroom setting. I mean, this guy loved stirring the pot in class. He loved the intensity of learning. He loved going back and forth with his fellow classmates. But when it came to any conflict that was interpersonal in nature, he could not stand it. And so whenever this guy was upset with someone or whenever he thought someone was upset with, upset with him, he would do anything and everything in his power to avoid that person. So for example, this guy actually had a conflict with one of his mentors, his spiritual mentors at school. And so whenever he would see his mentor on campus, he would turn around and walk the other way, even if it meant being late to class. If, uh, if the mentor shouted his name from afar, he would pretend that he was listening to music on his iPhone, even though we all know he wasn't listening to music on his iPhone. It wasn't until his mentor followed him all the way down to the very depths of the library basement to his cubicle, knocked on the door, that he had to face that uncomfortable reality of dealing with personal conflict. And so since we are at church, I guess I should, if you haven't caught on already, this isn't about a, some story about some guy I knew. This is a story about who I, about me or who I used to be. And I'm so very grateful for Dr. Jerry Taylor, who taught me this foundational principle in handling conflict, that the one thing you absolutely cannot do when you are having conflict with someone is run away. Instead, what you must always do is run, run directly towards it. And I share that story to say that I think Jonah would have benefited from having a Dr. Taylor in his life, given that he was the ultimate conflict avoider. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in our second week of Overboard, a sermon series going through the story or the book of Jonah, one of the 12 minor prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. And if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Jonah chapter 1, starting verse 3, all the, and we're going to go all the way through verse 16. And so our passage begins right after Jonah is called upon by the Lord to go preach against the evil that was rising up from Nineveh. And as the Lord commands Jonah to arise, to get up and go, we as readers expect him to do as the Lord says. But just when we think he's going to head to Nineveh, he goes the very opposite direction and heads down to Joppa. What is particularly perplexing or confusing about his flight is that we aren't immediately given the reasons why Jonah decides to run away. 
In fact, we don't discover his rationale until the very end of the story, all the way into chapter 4, where he is expressing this resentment to the Lord after he decides to spare the Ninevites from destructions. The passage says that Jonah thought that this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love and willing not to destroy. You see, by the end of the story, we discover that Jonah deplores the fact that God's mercy and compassion extends far beyond the bounds of his covenant with Israel. In other words, he hates that God's mercy and compassion extends to to anyone who does not share his Israelite heritage or nationality. By the end of the story, we discover that Jonah is a racist. And his racism is reflective of the standard Israelite worldview of his day. He believes that anyone who is not of his own racial heritage, is fundam- is, who is not of his own racial heritage, is fundamentally unworthy, unfit, and undeserving. So keep that unfortunate piece of information in the back of your head as we stretch our creativity for a second and reimagine our events in our passage this morning in chapter 1, starting verse 3. So as Jonah arrives to Joppa, he meets a group of sailors who are about to set sail to Tarshish. And before paying the sea fare or the sea tax to get on board, Jonah immediately, ta- immediately takes note that he's not like the rest of the sailors. It's sort of like when uh, I traveled internationally for the first time since my adoption from South Korea at six months old. So in the summer of 2011, I traveled to Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I was a missionary intern for a couple months. And my travel plans included flying out of Chicago O'Hare's International Airport, coincidentally flying on Korean Air. However, my flight began in my hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was running late due to terrible weather conditions. So when we finally landed in Chicago, I was sprinting to get onto Korean air. And as I was running, for some reason, I was thinking in my mind that I was about to get on the plane with my fellow Americans. So you can imagine my state of shock I was in when I walked onto the plane and I was met with a vast sea of people who looked very similar to myself. And as I gave the flight attendant my ticket, she smiled at me and started speaking Korean to me. And I felt so terrible because I just had to say, uh, sorry, ma'am, but I don't speak our, I mean, your language. And her smile immediately drooped to this frown and she pointed me to the back of the plane where my seat happened to be. It was such a bizarre and unforgettable experience for me because 
I came to grips with the reality of my American heritage in a way that I haven't experienced before as someone who was adopted from South Korea at six months old. It, it was this moment of understanding that I look like the people on the plane insofar as I share physical features with them because, you know, I, I am South Korean and I'm very proud of that. But I'm not like the people on the plane insofar as I'm an American and I'm very proud of that. So it's not a stretch for us to imagine that for Jonah, as he, he had a sim, similar experience as he looked upon the crew of Gentile sailors. But for Jonah, it's not just, I'm not like these people. For Jonah, it's, I'm not like these people and I am fundamentally better than these people because of my race and nationality. But given that he has no other travel options, he decides to pay the tax and to get on board. And so as Jonah walks on board, the captain asks the reason for his travel. And he says, oh, you know, I'm just running away from my God, the Lord. And, the, and to the captain, this seemed like an elusive answer at best, but captain figure, given all the people he's come across in his travels, given all the gods he knew about, he figured, teach their own, come on aboard. And so walking onto this ship, Jonah, Jonah immediately heads down to the lower levels to lie down. And right before he lies down, he can tell that things on the outside are getting a little hectic, that chaos is about to come down on their ship. But Jonah doesn't care. All he wants to do is fall asleep and sleep away his worries. So Jonah falls into this very deep slumber as the Lord rains utter chaos upon the crew at sea. Now, if you are one of the sailors, you know that this storm isn't the typical storm you've encountered before, right? This is the kind of storm that you hear about only in horror stories when you're sitting around the campfire, right? This is the kind of storm that you pray to the gods you'll never encounter because you know the chances of survival are zero to one. So given the severity of the situation, the captain heads down to the lower levels of the ship to get Jonah's help. And he is baffled to discover that this guy is in a peaceful, quiet slumber. So as Jonah is wake, as, Jonah, as the captain is shaking Jonah back to reality, he exclaims, how could you be sleeping so deeply? And as Jonah regains consciousness, it doesn't take him long to figure out what's happening here. He knows that this storm is from his God, and he knows why it's happening. He knows that he has angered the Lord. But unfortunately, Jonah's also really stubborn. You know, he's, he's like the child who won't fess up to breaking the cookie jar, even though he's the only one who, who could have done it, right? But Jonah isn't going to take responsibility for this. I mean, why should he? It's the Lord's fault for making him sail with these people. It's the Lord's fault for killing these people, not Jonah. 
However, the crew thought otherwise. In fact, the crew found out that Jonah was the culprit of this nightmare by casting lots. And I don't know how they did that, but however they casted lots, they found out that Jonah was guilty. And so they confronted the conflict avoider saying, tell us since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do and where are you from? What's your country and of what people are you? Now keep in mind that Jonah told them at some point that he was running away from his God. What he didn't tell them was which God he was running from. So Jonah finally decides to fess up, right? He proceeds to identify the God that he worships by answering, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the God who made the dry land and the sea. And the sailors taken aback by this response can only muster one question. What have you done? And I wonder, I wonder if it was at that moment Jonah began to feel something. I wonder if Jonah began to feel compassion. And perhaps Jonah's compassion grew even stronger as he looked upon their frightened faces as the crew came to grips with what seemed to be their impending death. It it might be like the kind of face I made when I flipped my car three times into a ditch my sophomore year in college on Interstate 20. All I remember thinking was only one thing as my car headed into that ditch 80 miles per hour. I'm about to die. So I wonder if the sailors' faces portrayed a similar thought. I wonder if it was at that moment compassion began to take over Jonah's heart, mind, and soul. And perhaps it's compassion that led him to say, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But the men rode to reach dry land, but they couldn't reach it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord saying, please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshiped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made solemn promises. See, that's what, that's what compassion does, right? Compassion leads to sacrifice. Compassion enables us to momentarily see our fellow human beings rightly. It holds down the sin that blinds our perception, our vision, our beliefs about the other long enough to see something familiar, something divine in that person that we believe is unworthy. For Jonah, feeling compassion means not seeing those Gentile 
group of sailors as racially inferior to him, but feeling compassion for Jonah means seeing those group of sailors as human beings who are equal to him, as human beings who are sons and brothers and fathers and husbands. Perhaps that's what Jonah was really avoiding in the first place, compassion. Compassion is dangerous for someone like him, someone who operates with this sense of superiority and national entitlement and privilege. Compassion is dangerous for him precisely because of the conflict it creates within himself. Compassion has the power to momentarily erase those artificial distinctions that keep us from loving our neighbors as ourselves. Compassion leads to sacrifice. Maybe that's why Jonah is not only running away from Nineveh, but also why he immediately went down to the lower levels of the ship to lie down, because he knows that proximity, closeness, being face to face with that Gentile crew of sailors has enormous potential to generate compassion for the kinds of people he believes to be undeserving, unfit, and unworthy. You see, at many points in Jonah's story, I think we witness him at his absolute worst, right? We witness his absolute worst when he runs away from the Lord's call. We witness his absolute worst when he is in a deep slumber, apathetic to the chaos running down upon him and the crew at sea. We witness his absolute worst when he reveals what he really believes about people who do not share his Israelite heritage. We witness Jonah at his most terrible throughout most of the story, right? However... While we mostly see Jonah at his worst, we also see a moment of his very best. We see a moment of his best in that critical moment when he offers himself to sacrifice himself for the sake of the crew. It's that moment when he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. I know it's my fault that this storm has come upon you. St. John Chrysostom, an ancient church father, comments on this saying that God sent the storm so that the prophet might learn to be a lover of man and to be subdued. In other words, God sent the storm to bring out Jonah's best, however momentary, which leads us to the great irony. The very people Jonah believes to be fundamentally unworthy are the very people he laid his life down to save. When Jonah is at his best, he is responsible, he is compassionate, he is sacrificial. He is willing to do anything for his neighbor, no matter who they are or where they're from. This Jonah is the guy you want to see after you have committed the worst sin in your life. He is that person you want to see when your life is in absolute chaos. He is that person you want to see because when you see him or her, you see Jesus Christ. You see someone who will sacrifice everything in order that you might experience the saving grace of God. That's the kind of people, that's the kind of church, that's the kind of community we are called to become. 
as people who confess in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. However, that kind of sacrificial compassion only ripens through proximity. Sacrificial compassion only grows in us by getting close, by getting face to face with that person or group of people we believe or we might believe are fundamentally unworthy. Uh, the closer we are to the people we believe are unworthy, then the more we will be transformed by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who melts away the sinful dross over our eyes and enables us to see our neighbor's humanity in full. And seeing our neighbor's humanity in full means seeing that familiar divine feature every single human being has, and that is the image of God. But seeing God's image in any person, especially those people we believe to be unworthy of it, means getting close enough to know and love that person. Uh, last month at my REACH group, I happened to sit with the Alexander family. They often go to the Connection service, and I think they've been coming to Highland for a couple of years, David, Lane, Amy, and Sadie. And I asked them about their summer plans, and they said, oh, we're going to take a family mission trip together, as if it was like not a big deal that they were doing that. And I said, okay, I've never heard of this before, so I said, tell me more. Well, they said, we're going to go to El Salvador. And turns out they've been going to El Salvador for about eight or nine years with some churches in Missouri. And they fell in love with the people in El Salvador and decided to help plant a church in, I think, Satilla, which is a small town on the border, about three to 4,000 people with no churches in sight. Well, that is until the Alexanders came along and helped plant a church in that small city. And now today, that church has about 40 to 50 people. And they continue to visit at least twice a year. And I share this story as a way to illustrate that the Alexander's sacrificial compassion and love for their friends would not be as strong or nearly as potent if they had not first gotten close. But by getting close, by getting face to face, they not only saw the potential for kingdom work, but they saw the one thing we have in common with every single human being on the planet, and that is the image of God. Last month, this church showed their extraordinary capacity to be generous with their finances. And we raised over $150,000 to go out to the 30 plus outreach ministries we have here at Highland. And if I may be so bold, because I am a preaching apprentice, on behalf of the staff and elders, we wanna say thank you. We are so very grateful for your generosity. But let us be absolutely clear, we not only want you to be generous with your finances, we also want you to be generous with your time. Come close and join us in one of our outreach ministries. Come close and join us in one of our mission trips to Ukraine, Belize, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, or China. Come close and join us in sharing the gospel at Hope Works, Making Hall Elementary, French Speak, or LaRose Elementary. Come close and join us in our in-house ministries here at Highland. Perhaps you think God's calling you to mentor a teenager. We'll talk to Hannah, Donnie, or Buster and let them help you discern that calling. 
Perhaps God's calling you to help out with the children's ministry. Well, talk to Michelle and Stephanie and let them help you discern that calling. Whatever it is God's calling you to, come join us as we, however incompletely, try and attempt to bring God's kingdom as our, on earth as it is in heaven. For we live in a world that is inherently broken by the sin of us against them. We live in a world that's replete with racial injustice, poverty, abuse, and violence. We live in a world where evil is consistently rising from our sin. And so in response to this brokenness, God's call to us is to come close, to get face to face with insiders and outsiders alike. Come close to that person or people in our church who lack community or come close with that person or group of people you might believe are fundamentally unworthy. Come close and get face to face with our neighbors who are made in God's image. You know, perhaps a good question for us to wrestle with at Highland and pray about is what would it mean for us to get close to our Muslim neighbors right down the street? Do we believe that they're made in the image of God? Are we spiritually mature enough to form relationships with our Muslim neighbors? You know, the kinds of relationships that allow us to share the good news that can be heard and the kinds of relationships that remain, even if they come here or not. Would we lay our lives down for our Muslim neighbors in order that they might experience the saving grace of God? For when we get face to face with our neighbors, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit will slowly unveil to us the one thing every single human being has in common, and that's being made in God's image. And the more we see God's image in that person or that group of people, the less we'll see that person or group of people as them, and the more we'll see them as us. Let's pray. Holy Father, you show the ultimate example of coming close by sending your son to live and dwell among us. You continually remind us of how close you are with the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. So we ask you to grant us courage, move us to repentance, ignite our passion to get close to the people who lack connection or the people we believe are undeserving of you. In the name of God, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we all say, amen. Let's stand and sing. Start a fire in me.